person becomes a believer, their behavior should be different from how they were before this life-changing experience. But is it just because they are expected to be that way? Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich explains why our behavior change isn't just following rules, but rather who's a part of who we are now. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Who Are You Bringing to the Party? From the First Corinthians, Chapter 6. Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you guys this morning as we gather around God's Word and see what He has to say to us. But as I said, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning, and we will be reading verses 12 through 20. 12 through 20. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them the members of unharlot? God forbid! What? Know ye not that which is joined unto an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh? But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And ye are not of your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne once again this morning, Lord, it is truly a privilege to be able to come to your house and to gather around fellow believers and others that have decided to join today, Lord. We just ask that you continue to open our hearts and minds to your truths as we open up your word and pour over those, that which is in there that you have to reveal to us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this chance to do so, and we thank you for the wisdom that you impart to us from that word. And Lord, as we go forward, help us to take those words and let them take root, take root in our lives, that they might bear fruit and glorify you and honor you in every way. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here today, but I just ask that you take me and use me as your tool, as your instrument. Fill me with your spirit. Empty me of anything that could in any way interfere with the message. Pride, selfishness, distraction, whatever it might be, Lord, just take me and use me as your messenger that I might communicate the words you've laid upon my heart that everyone here might hear from you and not anything from me. And Lord, as a church, help us to move forward. Help us to strive to be exactly that which you have ordained us to be, to be a beacon of hope and love and peace to the community around us, Lord. Let us exude all of the attributes that you have shown us. And Lord, let us always be forward-looking, be outward-looking to serve those around us, Lord. Let us never be self-serving in any way. And Lord, as individuals, help us to continually look for opportunities to share your gospel, to be your hands and feet. And Lord, let us always live lives that glorify you in every way, shape, and form. 
And Lord, forgive us of the times that we have put ourselves upon the altar, put ourselves above you, and we have sinned against you. Lord, we love you and praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our verses this morning, Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. Obviously, the, the letter being named 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. And, excuse me, and he's addressing some issues that had arisen in the, within the church there. And the church had found themselves in kind of an awkward position, really, in that they were de- in a place where they were actually defending certain sins that were going on within the church. And that's hard for you and I to believe, but it was actually going on, and it actually goes on at times today within certain churches. But the rationale that the church at Corinth was using to try to justify that it was okay to do these things was that if God had placed within our body a natural desire for something that was in and of itself not unnatural, then following through with these particular indulgences would not be sinful. And this is the mindset that they had. This was the thinking that was going on amongst the members of the church at Corinth. And they would also argue that because the law didn't specifically forbid something, then all things not mentioned must be allowed. And they were kind of of an indifferent nature of sorts. But Paul came back with a statement rebutting this and said that not all things are expedient. And he made a point that some of those things they considered lawful were not really agreeable with Christian attributes of decency, order, and purity. That's something we need to consider because sometimes people try to defend actions that we really kind of consider sinful with the excuse that, well, the Bible never explicitly and outright says that it is wrong. Some of these things that we hear that argument tried to use for, drinking, gambling, and the like. And while it doesn't make a blanket statement as such, that doesn't mean that it is proper for a Christian to do those things. That could be a sermon in and of itself, but I'm not going to get into that because everybody probably doesn't want to be here for two, three hours, right? Okay. Anyway, so we hear those arguments sometimes uh, 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 along those lines. But we see Paul also use a similar statement in chapter 10 when he's discussing the abuses that were going on in the Lord's Supper as well. The church at Corinth had an issue with the Lord, what, the way they were handling the Lord's Supper in addition to everything else. And in Paul's case, he first approaches this from the standpoint of food sacrificed to idols, and then he later ties in the sin of fornication as well for this particular instance. Now, we have heard those kinds of arguments also used for somewhat something similar. We've seen people use these arguments to defend the freedom of sexuality, that we have seen come into play over the last several decades. We see it to defend uh, like sex or same sex attraction and same sex uh, relationships. They try to explain this away with the argument, well, it's natural. I was born this way. So implying that because it was a natural feeling in their mind, that it was how God designed them, so to speak, and because of that, that they said they justified it by in, in uh, attaching that idea. 
We also see it to defend the casual physical relationships that we see between unmarried individuals. They might try to use an argument along the lines of, well, it's okay, it's natural, because we love each other and eventually we'll end up getting married as well. And so on and so forth. They try to say, well, it's because it's a natural and inborn desire within our bodies, then clearly it must not be a bad thing, per se, as long as we can kind of balance it with some sort of justification. But early in our text, Paul makes a statement that speaks to one of the dangers of allowing these natural urges, these God-designed urges within our bodies, to define the fact, be a defining factor of what is right and wrongs. Paul makes a very powerful statement, and we, and if you're not careful, you kind of read through it, and you can miss what he says. He says he will not be brought under the power of any of these things. He will not be brought under the power of any of these desires or urges. This is very important to keep in mind because we are to be the masters of these natural desires and urges. It is our place, our responsibility to keep these things in check that naturally well up within us. Particularly when mingled with a natural sinful nature or otherwise we are going to be end up being mastered by those urges. Meaning they, those urges will drive what our actions are rather than us controlling urges that well up within us. When we succumb to these things they become the governing factors the deciding issues that drive so much of what our society is looking at today. Hence the reason that fornication, homosexuality, adultery, and other sexual immorality now dominate so much of our society's moral fiber. And they are considered acceptable, believe it or not, in the society that we live in today. But there are other sins. I don't want to zero in just simply on those particular ones that could be included. Our natural desire to need to eat can be used to try to justify gluttony, which is a sin in and of itself. Our natural desire for, to maintain peaceful relationships and avoid contra- confrontation can be used to justify lying in times. Our natural desire for fellowship can be used to argue that people with strong worldly influences can be our close companions and even in a romantic relationship. And the list goes on and on. You see, we can tie natural desire, natural urge, with a lot of things if we try to say, well, because it's natural, we need to just kind of go with the flow here. But Paul in his exhortation to the church made an effort to get them to understand that there are other things we have got to consider before we act on anything. And he made some very interesting arguments that can easily apply to participation in any sin under any circumstance. And he lays out for us three critical considerations that I think if whenever we find ourselves in a position to do something, if we were to pause and think about these three things that Paul is laying out for the church at Corinth here, may bring about some significant reservations on our part and prevent us from carrying through with our actions. 
And understand that although the emphasis here is on sinful actions, truthfully, these can be applied to any circumstance, any situation we find ourselves in, to determine if we as Christians need to be a part of something. And the first thing that Paul drives home, the first point he really powers home with this, is that we have been spiritually joined to Christ. As believers, we have been spiritually joined to Christ. When we become believers, our union with the Lord is one that is inseparable. You cannot break it. Christ has taken our natures upon Himself, and inasmuch we are bound to Him. The spiritual union is one that reminds us that whatever we participate in, we're bringing Him along with us. Remember that. Too often we kind of delude ourselves. We get our mindset and thinking that we're isolated, almost hidden from Jesus when we choose to participate in sin. But the reality is we brought him along for the ride. This makes for a real good litmus test whenever we want to do something. Before we move to a particular action, before we move forward with any particular action, action in our life, we've got to ask ourselves a question. A question: Would we do this if Jesus was sitting right next to us? Would we do these things if Jesus was right beside us? You'd be surprised how that will put a new perspective on a lot of what we do. But by the same token, what a beautiful picture that paints for us to understand just how closely knit we are with Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Now Jesus, uh, is, we're told in scriptures that Jesus is even closer than a brother. Someone who can identify with all of our sufferings of this life. Isn't it awesome to go through life and no matter what circumstance we face, no matter what uh, thing we find ourselves dealing with, we can say, Jesus can identify with what I'm struggling with. What an awesome feeling that is. But in reality, it goes even beyond that. Ephesians 5.30 tells us, For we are members of His body and of His flesh and of His bones. Let me ask you a question. Who among us would intentionally expose the Savior to the ugly, filthy, sinful side of our lives? Yet that's exactly what we're doing when we choose to sin. Another thing to consider here is the idea that not only do we experience the spiritual unity with Christ, but those who are professing Christians are undeniably identified as connected with Christ. Anybody who identifies themselves as a Christian, who professes publicly to be a Christian, is tied in deed and in word to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, let me paint it this way. Everything that we do when we identify as a Christian becomes how others see Jesus. That's what they're going to connect Jesus with is our behavior when they know we are Christians. We say we're a Christian and we go out and we live like a world, that's the Jesus that they're going to see. A Jesus that's no different. So we need to be very aware of that. 
It's a harsh reality that we have to keep in mind. This is in part where Paul point, why Paul points out that we need church discipline. But there's a purpose and a role for church discipline. When we transgress, it's not done in a vacuum. When we sin, it's not done where nobody else cares. Why an unbeliever, when they see a professing Christian acting like the world, living like the world, they don't see a need for Jesus in their life. Because they identify that person's behavior with the influence that Jesus is having in their life. Why do they need Jesus? That guy's not acting any different than I am. He's not living any different. I don't see any difference in this person. Why would I need Jesus? And when our life is one that reflects a disregard for the moral standards to which we have been called, not only brings disgrace and dishonor to us, but to the reputation and sacrifice of the Savior as well as to the kingdom. You see, our lives are most certainly our strongest testimony. But there's even more to this. It doesn't even stop there. It goes even beyond this just than just our identity with Christ. Consider Romans 12.5, where it says, So we being many are all one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now this brings into view yet another reason behind church discipline. When we act in a worldly or sinful manner, we reflect on all of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well, and particularly to the church to which we belong. Our actions reflect on one another. And that should be good to keep in mind. Particularly when people know what church we go to and who we go to church with. Because now our identity is not just connected with Jesus Christ. Our identity is also connected in a way to those who we go to church with. They see us acting a certain way. They say, well, that must be okay in that church. So these people must be okay with that kind of behavior too. Do you see how it branches out like this? How our actions can impact so many different aspects of our Christian life and our Christian walk? When one of us falls, as a church, we all fall. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. That's why one of the goals of church discipline is restoration. Two primary things that we want to come out of church discipline. Repentance and restoration. Part of your body is causing you problems. You don't just immediately go to the doctor and say, Cut it off, doc. I don't need it anymore. It's giving me problems. That's not how we go, is it? No, we go to the doctor and say, Doc, can you fix this? This is causing me problems. Now, he may need to cut. He may need to do things that inflict short-term pain in order to achieve long-term restoration. Well, so it is with church discipline. We seek healing for it, restoration to its full functionality, just like we should for fallen church members. And while amputation sometimes is an absolute necessity to protect the rest of the body, it's not an option that should be rushed into clearly. We've got to remember the impact, though. 
That's the key takeaway from that. We've got to remember the impact that we can have on Christ, our church, and those we go to church with when we act in rebellion. We're not alone in that respect. The next point Paul gets into is as he reminds us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are literally the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the days back when they had the temple and uh, and even back to the tabernacle, the temple represented the presence of God with His people. That's what it represented, the presence of God with His people. With the realization that our body is the temple of the Spirit, it's a reminder that very careful or close care should be taken with regard to that issue and what it's used for. When we enter the Lord's house, we don't treat it as just some club. I know oftentimes we speak to our younger folks about their behavior in church and how it should be respectful and we remember who, where we are. It's not a clubhouse. When we come to the Lord's house, we need to recognize it as such. It is the Lord's house. It's His house and we should treat it with respect, taking care of it, maintaining it, keeping it clean, behaving properly. If you recall, in the book of Haggai, he got on to the people for neglecting the Lord's house. In fact, if you look in Haggai 1.4, he makes a comment. He said, Is it time for you, O ye, and you dwell in your sealed houses that this house lie waste? You see, what they had done, excuse me, and what they had done is they had taken great care to make sure their houses were well maintained and, and, and taken care of, all the while neglecting the house of God. God's house was in disarray, but by golly, their houses were in good shape. God expects us to treat His house with the respect and dignity it deserves. The other thing to think about is the fact that the temple is sanctified or set apart for the Lord's service. We are no different. We are no different as our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies have been sanctified, or in other words, set apart for service to the Lord. We are always to consider that we who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ are a vessel unto the Lord. We are purposed for the Lord's work, and we're not around for our own sinful pleasures and desires. This isn't the first time Paul had to point this out either. In the letter to the church at Corinth, we see in uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he makes the comment, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Once again, Paul reinforcing, listen, the Holy Spirit, as a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and thus you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Treat yourself as such. Act as such. Too many people have the mindset that if they devote their energies and their talents to the Lord's service, what they do with their body is of little consequence. They can kind of do whatever they want. As long as they're doing these things, as long as they're going through the motions, then what they do with my body, as they see it, doesn't matter. 
But clearly, from what Paul is telling the church, there is a very different perspective that should be maintained. You know, back in the ancient Greek times, they used to think that the human body was irrelevant. It was just a piece of flesh. And only the psyche, the mind, the intelligence was what was important. And this led to something called, and I always struggle with the name of this, antinomianism, or the belief that what a person does with their body was unimportant as long as their mind was in the right place. But we know. We know differently. We know from Scripture, from God's Word, that our bodies, what we do with our bodies, is of the utmost importance. We cannot take that which is consecrated for the Lord. We cannot take that which is for God's purposes and use it for evil. And the instance that Paul uses in this verse deals with fornication. If you're not careful, you might think he is just... He's only talking about sexual immorality. He speaks of one who treats their body as their own and gives it to the harlot for their own purposes. But the reality of this, it's not just limited to these one particular sins that he's talking about. The reality of this matter is that any time we choose to use our bodies, our minds, or any part of our being in the commission or omission of sin, we are giving ourselves over to the, whatever the agent of that sin is. We're saying that that which has been set apart for the Lord, I am going to snatch back temporarily, to use as I desire a right that we do not have. And that leads us to the next point, or next point that Paul made, and that is that we have been bought with a price. We have been bought with a price. Any of you adults know that when we buy, you buy a car with a bank loan, when you borrow money to buy a car, they, you know that you don't get the title of ownership to that car. That vehicle's owner is not you. It's whoever you borrowed that money from. Whoever gave you the money to buy that car owns that car until you pay them back. For as long as you make payments on that vehicle, the bank owns the rights to it. They do with it as they please. Once you pay it off, you can honestly say the car is mine. I'm not going to get into taxes. This is not possible until the time in which the debt that you owe on that car is marked paid in full. Once that debt is paid in full, then you can lay claim to it. This is, there is an indisputable truth for every man woman and child that has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, we no longer have claim to ourselves. Our debt has been paid in full and not by us. We were not the ones that put up the payment for the debt that we owed on our lives. We have been purchased and the title of ownership for every aspect of your lives has a name other than yours and that name is Jesus Christ. He has paid for you. 
because you couldn't possibly even pay for yourself. He has paid for you so that he can call you his own. And the price that he paid for you is higher than all the currency of every nation, all the jewels and precious metals of this world combined. No earthly price tag can be given to it. And that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Who here can say, I can purchase that back? I can buy that back. I've got something that's worth the value of the life and blood of Jesus Christ. There's not a one of us. We can't even begin to even think about that, let alone attempt it. Our rights have been bought by one who rules the universe. Therefore, let us live and die for the one who's laid claim to us. Romans 14.8 tells us, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, what? We are the Lord's. We are the Lord's in life. We are the Lord's in death. Both sides of eternity. And everything and all things, let our lives be a sacrifice for the Lord. We need to give back every moment we have breath in our lungs to God. I came across this beautiful summary of this idea when I was studying and I wanted to share it word for word for you because I'm very articulate and I like the way it's worded. It says, your heart is not your own, but Christ's. Your thoughts are not your own, but his who liveth in you. Your time is not your own, but is redeemed for the Redeemer. Your abilities and influence are not your own, but are to be consecrated to him to whom you owe both of them. Your property is not your own, but his who claims your all. The praise is due to him who is in, own, his, in his own mind conceived the purpose of redemption. The service is due to him whom to love is of necessity to serve. All the faculties of our nature and all the opportunities of our life may well be laid as a consecrated offering upon the altar of God, whose we are, not only by right of creation, but by right of grace and redemption, whose we are by every tie and whom we are bound to serve as the best expression of our gratitude and the best exercise of our liberty. What a picture. What an absolute picture. He has literally brought us back from the dead and given you new life. He's instilled in you, within you a new life, a life of hope, a life of promise, a life of goodness, and eternal fellowship with Him. Who are we to go back to wielding our bodies for the purposes of darkness, sin, and death when He's given us life? Romans 6, 12, and 13 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. 
bought with a price, folks. A price that has absolutely no earthly equivalent. A price where he became incarnate and required he empty himself of his glory. A price where the shed blood of the Lord, the very Son of God, was split and poured out for us. Which one of us could even possibly fathom that we have a claim or right to take back that which was purchased for such great a price and use it for our own purposes, particularly that which is evil and wrong? We no longer have claim to ourselves. We have been purchased outright. So the next time that we see and find ourselves staring into some inviting, carnally appealing arena of sin, you need to ask yourselves the question, who are you bringing to the party? Who are you bringing with you from a spiritual sense to participate in evil? We need to remember that we've been bought. But there are some of you today that are still a slave to that darkness. There are some here today, perhaps, or at the sound of my voice, that don't understand what it means to be bought. That still are a complete slave to their desires to sin. But I'm here to tell you today, it can be different. You can be given that new life that we talked about. You can be given that chance to spend an eternity with your Savior and Lord. To live a life that has purpose. To live a life that has eternal consequences and ramifications. For the kingdom. For the Lord. And it comes from a conscious decision that only you can make. I can't make it for you. I wish I could. But I can't. It's a deeply personal, intimate, individual decision to acknowledge your place, your hopelessness before God as a sinner. It's worthy of eternal damnation. And recognize that Jesus Christ has done the work to allow redemption and reconciliation to God the Father through His shed blood on the cross. The Bible says if you'll confess your sins before God, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again three days later in victory over sin and death, then you too can be saved. You too will be bought. And you can live your life in this world with the constant hope and knowing that when you leave this world you'll come face to face with your Lord and Savior for all eternity. Enjoy forever His presence. What's stopping you from doing it today? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your throne this morning. We thank you for this time that we've had together, Lord. We thank you for your word, the truth that it holds for us, Lord. We just ask that you take 
and allow your spirit to move upon all those that are here today. Burden our hearts, Lord, for anything that we might have not yet confessed or repented to you. That our hearts might be one with you. We might have enjoyed the relationship and the communion with you that we were intended to have. And Lord, it's my hope and desire that if there's anybody who's never allowed that price to be applied to their lives, that this would be the day they recognize their need for you. That this would be the day they recognize that they have no hope outside of Jesus Christ in this world or the next. Let them throw themselves before you, prostrate before you, Lord, that they might embrace the gift that you offer us so freely, the gift of salvation. Let them understand the freedom that comes with knowing when you are forgiven and no longer being a slave to the desires of our flesh. And Lord, we love you and praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space-Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await His joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at ProvidenceNBCGaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.